You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review. This is Daniel Horowitz here at the end of the week. It is Friday. It is Foreign Policy Friday time. And that means we will bring in Jordan Schachtel a little later. Just wanted to do some house cleaning beforehand because I didn't get a chance to put out a show uh, yesterday. You know, obviously we had great feedback from Wednesday's show with Todd Benzman, where we discussed the essence of what matters when it comes to national security and how the Western Hemisphere is even more important than than the Middle East. And we'll tie that in later today with Jordan. Um, but I, I wanted to just first give you two observations on the government shutdown that really wasn't much of a government shutdown. You see, if a government shuts down in a forest, does anyone know about it? What's fascinating, and I have an article out today detailing this. If you look at what happened this week, it's amazing. It's probably one of the eeriest weeks of my entire career. Where on the one hand, this is like the big Super Bowl of politics, a government shutdown. On the other hand, I mean, neither party really did messaging Neither party did anything. Neither party cared to even talk about this. There's two important lessons to glean from this. The fact that even Schumer kind of went home and didn't didn't really toss any barbs this week. Two very important lessons. Very different lessons, but I want to make sure you you come away from today's show understanding them. Number one, I'm going to link to in show notes... Our article from last week that we left you with before the Christmas break demonstrating how Republicans have the opportunity, had the opportunity to win this fight so easily, so quickly. I showed you how to force a talking filibuster. You basically get up there and say, hey, Mr. President, meaning the presiding officer in the chair, senator from Texas is recognized. I'd like to call up HR, whatever the House passed budget bill that has the border funding. You could call, you could force a vote, and it will pass with fifty-one votes. The only thing is, the other side could always ask to be recognized as well and continue talking, but only if you hold the floor and force them to hold the floor. I think I was proven right. That you could wear down the other side with the two-speech rule, keeping them in the same legislative day for in, you know, indefinitely, don't adjourn. So then they're limited to two-speech per person. How many of them over Christmas would have been willing to give too long speeches? Not too many. You see, they went home. See, there's something interesting we learned this week, and that is... Politicians are human too. They wanted to see their families. They wanted to go on their vacations. 
And that's why you see they're not yelping too much about a government shutdown, which demonstrates to me that if we would have kept them in, if Republicans would have held the floor and forced them in perpetuity to filibuster, and then again you could use Rule 19 to limit them to two speeches per day, and and a day means indefinitely because you don't adjourn, we could have gotten a concession by now. There is no doubt in my mind we could have won this. No doubt whatsoever. But the answer is Republicans don't want it. What did I say? Conviction, effective use of the presiding officer in the chair, forcing a talking filibuster, and a lot of coffee. I wasn't joking around when I said a lot of coffee. Politicians are human too, even though sometimes they don't act like that. But this is why the August recess, nights, Weekends, it matters. If you keep them in session and force them to hold the floor, this is going to work over time. But it's something that Republicans and Mitch McConnell have refused to do for the last two years. This is the big lie about the 60-vote threshold. There's not a 60-vote threshold for a vote. There's 51 votes. It's just that there's an asterisk that if a committed minority could hold the floor if a committed majority makes them hold the floor, and then it takes 60 votes or unanimous consent agreement to shut that off. Sorry about the interruption here. Just making sure my kid didn't uh, come in. He's home today. But anyway, that that's the big lie about the 60 votes. See, it's the perfect foil for them to hide behind. Oh, we didn't have the votes. They don't want the votes. So I'm just saying I am sure about this because obviously technically, technically – as I wrote in the article, you know, if the minority would want to play this out, it could take a while you know, to exhaust two speeches per senator. It could take a number of days, even weeks. But I'm telling you, I don't think there are too many of them that were willing to stick around and do this, especially if you would have done it over last Friday, Saturday, Sunday, into Christmas Eve, Christmas itself. They would have relented. So that is the first lesson. The second lesson is notice how much has happened with the government shutdown. Well, not much has happened. Now, first of all, more than ever, this is really a limited shutdown because defense, VA, which most of it's essential anyway, doesn't shut down. But even the non-essential didn't shut down. HHS, Labor, Department of Education – the it was only seven departments worth only twenty five percent of the discretionary budget that shut down, and no one notices, no one cares. The only time it's going to matter is starting the second week in January, when those people miss their paychecks. But the question we have to ask, and the lesson we need to teach as conservatives to the public is. God bless these people for taking these government jobs, but if the only time we miss or miss them or notice a shutdown is when it comes not to the functionality of the programs and the and the agencies but just the people actually working for them well why do we need it you know if we if we hire 10 le- legitimate scientists very you know well educated talented ta- scientists to study the mating habits of a rare breed of caterpillars should i be Stifled from continuing my advocacy to shut down that program just because, oh, 10 scientists rely on that for a paycheck? 
We are here for the good of the public. It's public policy. And the lesson is when you see that, and I have it all here, the percentages. Here's the breakdown. 96% of HUD employees are considered non-essential. 81% of interior. 90% of treasury. 84% of agriculture. 95% of education. 69% of energy. And probably a lot of that 30% is from the nuclear program, which there's no reason it can't be housed under DOD. 85% of commerce. Why are we doing this? Now, look, before any of you throw rocks at me, obviously I understand the difference between non-essential and not necessary. Right? It could just be that for a temporary lapse in funding, these are an emergency positions that we have to bring them in even without funding. But in the long run, they're still necessary. But my point is, like, you know, everyone's like, Oh, Justice and HHS, they don't really uh, – DHS, I mean, don't really shut down because only you know, 14% are non-essential, meaning almost everyone is essential. So that makes sense because fundamentally those are things. It's the court system. It's the U.S. Attorney's Office. It's the FBI. It's the Border Patrol, ICE, Customs. That, that, that is at its core the function of the federal government. That's why we have a federal government. So it makes sense. Yeah, you'll have certain non-essential. You you need certain non-essential to uphold the essential ones. That makes sense. But when you see all these, not just agencies, but entire departments, where 80 to 95% of the workforce is deemed non-essential, then that fundamentally means that the Fed shouldn't be involved in that because everything the Feds do should kind of be on par with – Border Patrol, military, or at least writing social security checks, but if which whatever I shouldn't have gotten involved in the first place, but now that it's there, it's essential. But my point is, again, we have fifty state governments, we have three thousand county governments, we have ninety thousand governing bodies for localities and and municipalities. Why should things like housing and Education being part of the purview of the federal government, this is not even an ideological point. It's just not for the federal government. We could do without that. Certainly, we di- we disagree ideologically in terms of housing subsidies and education. Obviously, you know agriculture, but do it on a state level. Why do you need this? In total, 43% were furloughed during the 2013 shutdown. And so it, it, see, this time doesn't give you an accurate perception of what's fat and what's muscle because a lot of the government is already anyway funded for the full fiscal year. It was only a very partial shutdown. But 43%. I mean, think about it. We now spend $71 billion on the Department of Education, $42 billion on HUD. Why? There's a debt ceiling deadline coming up in a couple months. We have $22 trillion in debt. Republicans have grown at $8 trillion since they took over the House over the last eight years. Just $1.4 trillion over the last year, and it's probably going to be over $1.7 trillion this year. It's going to blow out all records. 
shouldn't this be part of a debt ceiling debt recovery plan? Start with these agencies that are non-essential. Department Department of Labor, 81%. Why do you need labor, commerce, HUD, education, most of energy? A lot of treasury really is, is garbage. Agriculture, we don't we don't need this on a federal level. Even if you believe it on a uh, you know having it on on a local level. And that's the sad thing. When it comes to the few things government should be doing, they don't do to protect us. You know, as a as a way of paving the road for to bring on Jordan here for national security, foreign policy Friday. ICE, because they don't have enough room because of the invasion, they just released up to a thousand of these people in El Paso. So many of them are going to be dangerous. At best, drains on 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 the public. At worst, tons of criminals. Two more people were killed in California thanks to illegals, including a police officer who himself was a illegal immigrant. Think about the profundity of the violation of the social compact. That. We're supposed to determine who comes in here. Yet the courts now determine they come in against our will. Steal our nation from us. And then even the people we let in through consensually who want to develop a life here. And like this guy, Officer Singe, became a police officer in a small town. A squad of 13 officers. And he was gunned down by an illegal that should never have been here. But thanks to California sanctuaries, thanks... To the lack of lawfare security and border security. This is the thing. We don't need the departments of labor, education, commerce, HUD. But yet when it comes to protecting us from external threats, the internal order, Madison said, that was for the states. It's external threats. And that's why we have a federal constitutional system. That's why we left the Articles of Confederation, because they wanted a strong government for a few things. And one of them was to protect us, as Madison said, that was the impetus for moving on from the Articles of Confederation. Protect us from, quote, obnoxious aliens. Government doesn't protect us. And yet all they care about are the borders of non-existent nation-states with tribal warfare and the whole Syria thing. So with that, we're going to bring on Jordan Shackdell, the star of Foreign Policy Friday. So to jump right into this, we got Jordan on the line, wanted to transition right away into foreign policy. Hey, Jordan, a week later from this big Syrian pullout, we had a lot of predictions of Armageddon. Let's just get straight to the point here. What has changed over the last week for better and for worse? Hey, Daniel. Happy New Year. So there are quite a few things that have changed. And what's interesting is that we discussed this yesterday in a, in a private conversation, but you've seen um, kind of the geopolitical situation uh, transform a little bit. Uh, Russia, Turkey, and Iran was uh, very close, you know, moving in lockstep. And now there's this friction created between particularly Turkey and Russia and Syria. Um, some of it's over the Kurds. 
Some of it's over Turkey feeling emboldened that it should move into Syria more aggressively to take on the Kurds and Russia not really wanting Turkey to play a, a big part in Syria. And then you also have um, the Arab countries are starting to move their embassies back into Damascus, and they have, um, for better or worse, recognized that the Assad regime, they think, is there to stay, which I think is a pretty accurate calculation. And instead of having it just Iran and Russia um, you know, control the narrative there, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, um, Bahrain, a lot of these countries are now moving their embassies or moving their ambassadors back into Damascus to try to have a say in, you know, the uh, the future of Syria. So I think, you know, it's, it's an important, uh, it's a smart tactical move on their um, their approach there. And, and that's kind of where we are a week later. And I think that's important because, you know, we laid out a thesis last week. We got a lot of good reaction to it because I think people are starving for a deeper, broader analysis rather than the false dichotomies, the false choices, the tunnel vision of the media takes you to one aspect of foreign policy, and that's pretty much it. You know, it's, um, uh, you know, either we pull out in this chaos or we got to be here. And we always said you have to look at it dynamically, just like with healthcare, It's only a problem to afford it because you have government distorting the market. If you didn't have that and you did other things and you had price transparency in a normal market, other things would come into play. And I think we see the same thing with Syria. One of the things I've always said is that Syria – You know, there's one thing if you have a, a bidimensional situation instead of a multidimensional uh, geopolitical situation in a given part of the world. So then you say, well, look, you know, let's say, for example, during the Cold War, it was mainly – it was America and it was everyone else, right? It was – I'm sorry. It was the Soviet Union. So by us pulling out of something, naturally the Soviet Union would be empowered. In this case, you got Russia with the axis of Assad, Hezbollah, and Iran – but again, even those two aren't fully in lockstep. It's very complicated. You got enemies, you got friends, and then you got frenemies. And each one's a different story. So, you know, you got them. Then you have the Sunni insurgency, which is always going to be there. So I agree with you that they now see that the Assad regime is going to sustain itself. But I, I don't think they're going to sustain itself in perpetuity in all corners of the country without a Sunni insurgency. That's going to come back. They're going to have to deal with it. And then you got Turkey, you got the Kurds. So I, I want to I want to get your take on the thesis we built, and you know, again a week later, what we see through the prison of Caroline Glick's Breitbart piece, where she I think this is a great title: "Withdrawal from Syria has a positive side." But Erdogan is a negative one. And I think that's really, you know, what you and I have been talking about for for a while that, you know, a lot of people aren't looking at this in the right uh, lens or through the right lens. And she notes that the one problem with what Trump is doing is really the problem that the media is not focusing on. So can you just elaborate on what we're seeing from the Turkey angle? Um, I think there's a lot of positive we could speak about. From the general withdrawal, I think it needed to happen. Our troops were stretched thin. We weren't too embedded, but 
enough that it was a problem, but not enough that the pullout was so bad. Let's get get rid of it now. But now we got to get tough on Turkey. Are there any signs that Trump is getting tough on 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 Erdogan? So the one major critique I think we both have, and that Caroline Glick really um, put together well in her piece on the downside of the withdrawal, is that Erdogan is not a reliable person, especially when it comes to defeating ISIS, if they want to still pursue that route. And, you know, we can discuss the strategic implications of only focusing on ISIS. But Erdogan is not a partner to the United States in our, in our you know, global war against um, Sunni jihadists specifically because the Erdogan regime empowers them with financial support, um, mostly clandestinely, and they also give them weapons and rhetorical su- support for the Muslim Brotherhood, which in my view is a much bigger threat than you know these pop-up um, jihadist groups that will go away after a couple of years because they you know, aren't um, strategically uh, too smart. But the issue with Erdogan is that the president has given Erdogan responsibility to um, take the mantle of the fight against um, our enemies. And what Erdogan is completely focused on is that there is a, you know, a, a significant Kurdish uh, constituency in Turkey that he views mostly as the enemy of his country. And by extension, the Kurds in Syria, specifically the, um, the more kind of radical left-wing ideologues who you know, are the uh, communist secular brand of Kurds in the PKK and some of the YPG fighters, Erdogan views them as a threat to his country, and he thinks that they take, um, you know, they're much more important than ISIS. And he won't say that. Um, he says it in, in uh, Turkish, but he won't say that to President Trump. He tells President Trump that he will be responsible for taking out ISIS, but we know the evidence shows that this is not the case at all, that Erdogan is, is a force for empowering Sunni jihadists, and he is not our friend on this issue. Um, we can use him to our benefit, and we can use what's left of our um, partnership with Turkey and the NATO alliance to maybe help um, push back against, say, Russia, Iran, and maybe China in some instances in our you know, great power battles where we need to uh, find allies where we can. But when it comes to the global jihadist war, Turkey is on the wrong side of that war. And I think Caroline in her article really um, makes that quite clear. And and that's the thing, the dichotomy between the actual troops and the broader strategic vision, that really is what we need to hone in on, that I actually have been calling for Trump to pull out troops – I don't think we should be involved in there. I think we were helping all of our enemies because we were, you know, kind of the the pinata there. Um, and then, you know, we go away. And now there's suddenly a lot more to think about. Like I said, it's not bi-dimensional. It's multi-dimensional. So now, for example, you know, Russia and Turkey are frenemies. I mean, they're mainly more enemies. Um, but, you know, again, everyone's going to align in a certain way against us. So – the conventional wisdom is, well, Erdogan now is going to crush the Kurds. Okay. Well, part of the problem is we should be holding Turkey accountable. We should be cutting off weapons or at least threatening, threatening to kick them out of NATO. 
And the, part of the problem is Erdogan knows that he could play both sides of the fence. He could screw the NATO alliance by purchasing um, Russia's S-400 you know, anti-aircraft uh, uh, surface-to-air missiles, which you know, are widely believed to be a, an assault on NATO's F-35s, but at the same time benefit from the NATO alliance and then you know, have all that. But, but if we would hold them accountable and say, hey, pick a side, we don't do that. I think even those – there are those that think that somehow Erdogan is sal- salvageable. I don't really agree with that. But to the extent you're going to get him back on your side, you've got to give the stick more than the carrot than we've been doing the last decade. And then there's the other dimension to this, which is Russia, that the minute that you hold them accountable, now they – so A, they'll, they'll be scared of our might. I mean l- l- let's not forget. We're not pulling out. We're not isolationists. We're not – advocating that you know at the end of the day we still have what is it we still have the fifth fleet in the persian gulf we have the sixth fleet in the mediterranean that's where we need to be uh, we, we don't believe in not projecting our power we need to project it in, in a strategic way but i think it actually helps our case as caroline points out there's I, I i don't know if this is true but she quotes one source that the israeli government might have even called upon Americans to get out of there. What she was saying is that we were in the way of their bombing, almost like our soldiers were. Again, they were very precarious. Um, you know, it wasn't like a bunch of guys, thousands of troops at a forward operating base with combat capabilities outside of it flanking it. They were very precariously embedded in these units all across the geographical landscape of the Northeast, and it it harmed Israel's ability to go on. You know, bombing raids against the IRGC and Hezbollah and Assad targets, they wanted us out of there. Now, if you hear complaints from them, again, it's it's the broader stuff. It's Trump being a little bit weak on sanctions now, his Erdogan stuff, which is gratuitous to the pullout. So I think that's the broader thing. And then finally, curious what you think about this. You know, again, I think they wouldn't threaten the Kurds if we would threaten them with with soft power. But aside from that, ironically, the Russians are a check on them, too. This is what happens when it's a five-way war. See, the Russians don't mind if the Turks liquidate the Kurds. I mean, I don't think they care either way about the Kurds. It's not so much their purview. But what they do care about is two things. They don't want a resurgence of the Sunnis because that's going to give them problems. And they don't want the Turks, which really are not a strategic partner, or they almost went to war. They don't want them controlling the Kurdish-rich oil fields, right? Exactly. They, they think that Turkey is trying to make a strategic play. And if you've seen what Turkey does in, say, Cyprus, you know they're still permanently occupying northern Cyprus. So what's to say that Turkey won't try to go into Syria and and basically, you know, build out from their country into Syria and just say, you know, we control this area now. And Russia also doesn't want that. And now there's reports that um, with the coming Turkish advance that the Assad regime is sending forces up to the Kurdish areas to fight Turkey. So, you know, it's again a case of two of our adversaries kind of uh, fighting it out. And we can sometimes, it's a perfect case for um, prudent, non-intervention strategy when you see two of your uh, enemies kind of going at it just just let them have let them go at it and see what happens they're both weakening their position 
And sometimes, you know, that could be a better way to protect the Kurds than to say, you know, to have American forces stationed there forever, risking their lives and, you know, screwing around with the dynamics of the, uh, you know, the Syria chessboard and just allowing the Iranian access to expand. So now you have Turkey fighting Assad and Russia now has to make an awkward decision. So I don't think that the Kurds, I don't see a situation where the Kurds are just going to get totally rolled because they will find allies, um, whether it's Russia or Assad or Iran, unfortunately. But I don't think that people are just going to allow Turkey to go in there and, you know, decimate them. And the U.S. should definitely be using its soft power to, um, you know, hold up the F-35s and definitely don't approve, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar Patriot missile purchases, too. So we'd like to see the the Trump administration, um, you know, enacting a better soft power strategy to protect the Kurds. And the, the issue with, you know, us being kind of out on this when it comes to Turkey and the Kurds is that, um, as I, as I just mentioned, Russia and Iran are filling that void, and we could lose potential allies because uh, we're no longer seen as a reliable force. So in order to kind of make up for the withdrawal, we have you know, the world's most powerful economy, and we can use that as leverage to protect our allies. Exactly. And I think that, to Trump's credit, the energy – this is really where domestic policy – while we need to not have debt – and a dumpster fire, you know, debt funding the Department of Education, <laughs> as we uh, discussed at the beginning of the show before we brought you on here. Um, and we need to ramp up oil production, which, you know, even some, uh, you know, Republican members are, are fighting certain offshore drilling and some of um, the Department of Interior's plans to expand drilling. But even from what we've done so far, we're really crushing it. I mean, if you think about it, the Arab areas were crap since the 1600s. 1600s. They really, I mean, they declined. Um, it was only in the 20th century with the discovery of oil that they became a problem, and we're neutralizing that. We're neutralizing Russia with that. So it's it's that strong, you know, again, strong Western Hemisphere strategy, which we won't get to so much today. Maybe we'll touch on that at the end. Um, strong soft power with oil exports, oil, natural gas. We're really countering them. Um Leave your fleets. You know, we're not saying to pull that back, but that's less costlier. It's um, more strategic. It's not as risky. You know, our, our friends at um, the security group studies, you go to securitystudies.org. Um, a lot of our mutual friends are there. It's actually the budding of what I think could be a very good third way think tank of the way to look at foreign policy, the true hawkish. Wait, eschewing this uh, false dichotomy between isolationism and just stupid interventions. And I think they're doing a good job. And they put out a 17-page report on Syria, and they actually redacted some parts because they 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 felt they didn't want to expose to the to you know publicly how weak our forces were in Syria. But they were making the case that we were very precar- precarious there. And I think the more I see it, I think the pullout was the perfect timing. It was the right thing to do, albeit again. <laughs> More and more, the Erdogan thing is the wrong thing to do. It's it's that, you know, I think they're moving in opposite directions. So, you know, one of the things that I think we learned from this week is, again, what Israel is doing is actually, and I want to use this to segue into the media's uh, sudden uh, love 
supposedly for Israel, um, and and what Israel is upset with and what they're not, we always said they're the perfect model. They're not sucking us into war, nor are they somehow themselves desiring what Lindsey Graham is calling for. It's that they stand outside of the dumpster fire and they strike and maneuver. And they did that this week. You know, right after we said, mm-hmm. oh, they're in trouble, they did it. And that's where Carolina was reporting that they were able to do that more effectively with our troops out. That's why I think, you know, if we leave our fleet there, we reserve the right to strike and maneuver is a much better strategy um, than than what the other side is calling for. So with that, Jordan, I want to move on to what you're doing with with y- your work against Brett Stevens, these other guys. In my entire life, I've never seen the media suddenly feign love and concern for Israel when it comes to bashing Trump. Trump is leaving Israel out to dry. He's anti-Israel now. I mean, this is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's just it's similar to the reports where where the media, you know, pretends to care about the troops, well, at least the legacy media. And then they see them asking the president for signatures. And then all of a sudden that our, our soldiers are, are violating their commitment to the Constitution. Right. It's like that bogus uh, concern that they have. But as for Israel, um, you're right. Israel has been freed up to really maintain a more aggressive posture, which doesn't mean intervention in Syria with ground troops, but has more free reign to attack, especially Hezbollah and Iran targets. And people don't really realize that, especially the Mattis Pentagon was particularly hostile to Israeli actions because it kind of upset the apple cart in their sole focus on ISIS. And when Israel would strike um, a Hezbollah or Iranian or Syrian regime um, target in Syria or Iraq, the Pentagon would sometimes leak that it was Israel who did it to kind of dissuade them from doing so. And um, one of the top officials, the leader of the uh, counter-ISIS coalition in the State Department, Brett McGurk, was also you know, very much anti-Israel and even had you know, these Shiite militias involved in these efforts to um, supposedly counter-ISIS. And these Shiite militias were funded and trained by Iran. So now that we're kind of taking a step back and hopefully eliminating, you know, the sole focus on ISIS strategy while ignoring the rest of the region's problems, um, Israel is now allowed to operate in the region. They do need to make sure that Russia is somewhat accommodated. And this is a reality because Israel is a very small country and they can't simply just um, ignore, you know, the world's great powers in Russia, China, the United States. They need to be on okay terms with these countries in order to operate. So um, Israel has much more free movement than it used to with um, with this, you know, the only ISIS approach kind of being phased out and having, you know, other Arab entities getting into the regional um, affairs in Syria. So I think that it's quite shocking when you see people like Brett Stevens, who wrote a glowing op-ed of uh, General James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, who just resigned and Trump pushed out early, um, starting in a few days, to for him to glorify Mattis and say that Trump's foreign policy was bad and that the Syrian withdrawal is abandoning Israel, it's actually all backwards. And uh, 
I can, of course, link to the piece in the show notes and kind of uh, show how that is the case and why Stevens' argument doesn't make sense. And it kind of leads you to conclude that he just hates Trump so much that, you know, now Trump is bad for Israel because the New York Times readers will eat it up. And, you know, the extremely hostile to Israel New York Times, it's quite uh, hypocritical for Stevens to now care about Israel's interests, even though he has, you know, a long track record of writing uh, stuff about Israel. It seems that his hatred for Trump has trumped every other issue on his mind. And he is even willing to, you know, miscategorize completely and mischaracterize uh, Trump's foreign policy on this on this uh, conflict. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing I'm seeing, even from lifelong liberals, like hardcore media officials for the first time. I mean, the only thing they hate more than conservatives is Israel. They hate Israel. And suddenly, like, oh, Trump is screwing over Israel. And that's why I, f- I felt this was very important because, you know, Caroline lives there. She has a lot of ties to Israeli government. And I figured, you know, that's where you're going to get the story. And I was very excited when I saw her column that it really was our thesis. It was what we put together last week that, no, if you read carefully what Israel is upset about, it's the part that the media is not talking about because, frankly, they agree with it. Um, it's not the pullout. It's the opposite. And I think you touched on something that's really – you're not our listeners are not going to hear elsewhere. It, it, it's a perspective. And, and this is the thing. You have the shutdown. We talk about a government shutdown. We have the shutdown of the mind in D.C. There is no strategic thinking. On anything, but certainly foreign policy, in that, you know, back in the past, too many people thought that Israel was at fault and they were responsible for getting us into war, or they were the ones pushing these wars and pushing these interventions. And, you know, really it wasn't true. And you had people like Mattis, a lot of the Marine leadership, not the rank and file, they're conservative. But, you know, this is a whole discussion with the political problem with today's generals. A lot of them were anti-Israel. And the reason is, and it it made a lot of sense, they were walking on eggshells in the Arab world, in Qatar with CENTCOM, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. And they're like, shut up, Israel. It's like, you know, we don't want you to do anything. Well, I mean, really, it was the opposite. Israel never wanted us there to begin with. And... Often they say, look, we can't pull out because then, you know, we're going to show that we're not reliable. We're not reliable. But the problem is there's stupid interventions, just like stupid education subsidies, stupid health care subsidies, right? Perpetuating it because you have to perpetuate it is not a good policy. Sometimes these are not interventions and alliances we should be making in the first place. You're right. You're right. We're, we're not going to be reliable to our Afghani allies if we pull out. <laughs> You're right. Um, We shouldn't have made that case to begin with. And I think that's what people are missing, that in fact, when we are in these places, we're hurting Israel because it hampers their ability because then American soldiers are are strung out very precariously um, and and they have to watch out what they bomb. They're scared of inflaming tensions on the ground with the tribes because American soldiers will pay for it. So then the American generals tell Israel you can't do anything. And now these same people have the nerve to say Trump pulling out is hurting Israel. It's absolutely not true, and I think we've proven that. What does hurt them is obviously you know the other garbage that Trump is doing. But again, to be fair, you know – we wish he would change. We've been advocating he change, but he's really continuing 
previous policies. What is going on with the purchase of this of the surface to air missiles? And you know, Congress. One of the few good things that were, was bipartisan that they did, they blocked the sale of F-35s. Are you seeing any effort to try to signal to Turkey, dude, you can't play both sides of the fence? So the issue with Congress, of course, is that, you know, as we discussed at length, is that they are always looking at where the political winds are blowing. And they never really seem too concerned with, besides a select few members of the House and the Senate, uh, you know, some Freedom Caucus folks and, uh, you know, senators like I think Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton and, and some others have really led on this issue. And I think, you know, even Rand Paul, who we have a lot of disagreements with, um, he offers a unique perspective. Uh, but the issue is that in terms of taking back Congress's constitutional powers, they don't seem particularly interested. Um, Congress will, you know, release a resolution they they did fight on the F-35 issue, but it, it it seems that they were basically overruled by the Pentagon, which is kind of a separate, a separate issue when it comes to um, executive overreach. And, and the Pen- and having, you know, the military kind of extend its authority over um, affairs that should be guided by, um, you know, democratically elected Congress. Uh, the Pentagon is, the, you know, they're making some weird moves, uh, non-transparent moves in recent years, they're really refusing to give us an accurate troop count on both Syria and Afghanistan. And as I think we discussed a few months back, when these reports came out in Afghanistan showing that the Taliban was taking over more and more territory, they started to classify more and more about these reports. So I think that, you know, it, it's so important that Congress takes back its constitutional role and becomes very transparent about um, there needs to be an entire movement started uh, inside Congress and outside Congress, a really grassroots movement for, for, for Congress to take back its authority in um, especially declaring war or blocking, um, you know, missile transfers, F-35 transfers. Congress has an important role to play, but unfortunately I'm not seeing – any um, energy on this front. They only seem to be interested when it's about, you know, Jamal Khashoggi and Saudi Arabia and the U.S. refueling mission in Yemen. Um, very small ball things that don't at all impact our foreign policy. And it's all political. And in terms of the big issues, yeah, they're, they're, the jury is completely out and uh, they, they don't seem particularly interested in, in tackling these big constitutional issues. That's the true government shutdown, where you literally have military control, not civilian control. I mean, this is what the founders didn't want, where, you know, it's again, it's no different than healthcare, housing. When you have rent seeking in government, the military, we put them in stupid situations and then it just becomes an institution in itself. And there's no civilian strategic thinking on the part of political leaders as to should we be there to begin with? Is there a better way of doing this? So they just self-perpetuate. Then you have the, you know, obviously military industrial complex just with the hardware and the sale of stuff to these countries. And they're going to perpetuate it. And what's dumb is they're so into Trump. Now, sometimes I think we could benefit from that because, you know, maybe now we'll get them to be tough on Turkey where they never wanted to be tough the last 10 years just because they hate Trump. But there's, if they were smart, like you said, there would be a bipartisan effort in Congress to get together and say, look, we disagree on a lot of things, but 
This has nothing to do with Trump. It really doesn't. We're seeing this. It has nothing to do with Trump or Obama. A lot of this is just the Pentagon in perpetuity, the military leadership traversing administrations. They just continue the same policies. Um, you know, there's a lot of things we disagree with Trump on foreign policy, but most of them are not the unique things he did. It's really what he just continued from previous administrations. And I think that's where Congress needs to get involved and say, hey, why are we doing this? Why are we giving weapons to them? Why are we not asserting our power over over Turkey? And I think just a attitude change with Turkey would would shake up the entire landscape there. Um, two more things I want to get to before we uh, run out of time. So the latest on the Khashoggi stuff, hasn't there been a lot of information that came out this week from the Washington Post itself, other sources, that it turns out, as we suspected, the Khashoggi death was an entire info op from Qatar and that he was downright getting paid from Qatar to, to do this stuff. Yeah, so Jamal Khashoggi, we found out this week that he was assisted by um, a, a, a top executive at the Qatar Foundation, which is a, which is kind of like the supposed nonprofit, but it's run entirely by the nation of Qatar, and that his translator coincidentally worked for the Qatari embassy in Washington, D.C., because apparently there's no Arabic to English translators except for the ones that work in the embassy. So they're trying to make it sound like it's this amazing coincidence. But in fact, Khashoggi was assisted and guided by um, Qatari-backed Western individuals, um, a woman named Maggie Salem, who has had a long um, personal uh, friendship with Jamal Khashoggi and shares a lot of his views when it comes to Israel, um, the Muslim Brotherhood. And you can see this through her social media. And she was kind of guiding his columns as the executive director of the Qatar uh, Foundation International, which is run by the Qatari government. And the Washington Post has possession of hundreds of text messages between um, senior, in addition to Qatari officials, they have text messages with uh, Khashoggi and senior Turkish officials, along with American Islamist directors, um, such as you know, the leaders of CARE, which is supported by Turkey and Qatar. So this is a multi-pronged effort. I think um, he, Jamal Khashoggi, you can conclude at this point, was a Qatari asset um, which the Saudis would consider him to be a traitor because this is like the equivalent of an American um, former intelligence operative working for uh, China, you know, flying literally like leaving America and starting to work, um, you know, for the regime in China or Iran um, and to write anti-Saudi propaganda as a Qatari asset is pretty fascinating. And then when he died, Turkey took over the information operation um, through the same senior officials that he was talking to before he died. So, you know, the chief um, kind of financiers and supporters of the Sunni Muslim Brotherhood were working with Khashoggi before he died. And then after he died, they pushed um, you know, the giant foreign propaganda operation to destroy U.S.-Saudi uh, ties. And this was, you know, all based on the fake um, supposed facts about his promotion of democracy, which was always nonsense, 
you know, we reported um, at length at conservative view about his Islamist ties. But the point is that Khashoggi was um, basically a he was a Saudi intelligence operative turned Qatari asset. And his he did not even uh, write his own columns at The Washington Post, which is which is a huge scandal for The Washington Post, because they should have at least registered him as a foreign agent for the government of Qatar and as well as his editor. Do we know if his editor was aware that Khashoggi was working for Gutter? And if so, why didn't she disclose that in his writing? Why didn't she disclose that someone was writing his columns for him? There's a lot of questions. So now we know that, I mean, the Washington Post likely has other foreign agents, and that, that's a very big concern. Um, you know, no, no, one's, <laughs> no one's trading emails with us here at Conservative Review buying influence, and that's, that's a big problem here. Um, that the political class doesn't – the same people that are like, oh, my gosh, we have to we're, – we're getting weak on pulling out. We're, we're not going to fight the ISIS. <laughs> These guys seem to have no problem with the Qataris, which are really the antecedent to all this. They're the funding source for a lot of that, the Sunni insurgencies and the terrorism. Um, that's very concerning, and that's the thing. You get tough on Erdogan. You get tough on Qatar. Uh, which which Trump almost looked like he was doing for a while, but again, you know, held back. And a lot of that's because, well, we can't because we have CENTCOM. But why do we have CENTCOM? Well, because uh, we need to screw around on behalf of uh, the Shia militias in Iraq and uh, the goat blankers in uh, Afghanistan. I, I mean, this is how one stupid policy leads to another, just like in domestic policy. And this is why, again, we need to sit, stand back have strong naval assets, but don't jump into their things unless it's a strike and maneuver that we need to. Identify our interests, use soft power, use our oil um, exports, which are amazing, um, make the right alliances, use the right carrots, use the right sticks. And finally, as always, it comes back to the Western Hemisphere. This all ties in together. If you care about Israel, if you care about certainly America, if you care about – if you're worried about Hezbollah – Migrants, the drug trade. You know, I had on our buddy Todd Benzman on the Wednesday show to discuss the controlled flow of Middle Easterners through Panama and Costa Rica. What we didn't discuss so much is it starts somewhere. They have to get to the Western Hemisphere. They get there by flying to Brazil's capital. Brazil is in many ways the most important country in the Western Hemisphere – I mean, in South America, it's the largest country. That is the entry of any Hezbollah operative or any you know migrants we don't want from the Middle East. You have the tri-border area with Paraguay and Argentina that is just literally like almost like a private Islamic training area um, controlled by Hezbollah. Everyone knows that. That's obviously out in the open. Um, so it's very important that rather than you know. Again, if you believe that we need to mess around the Middle East by a factor of 10,000, we need to get our ducks lined up here. We have this opportunity with good leaders um, that are open to our viewpoint in these areas. Yet, you know, I feel like we're not being we're not a strong enough backer in the Western Hemisphere to give these people enough spine to stand up to Hezbollah in their countries, to the Arabs. Um, to Iran, Russia, China. Bolsonaro was elected. That was a good thing. Netanyahu is – he has just landed in Brazil to meet with him for the first time. What could you tell us about that trip, how it sheds light on the need for us to have a stronger presence in our own hemisphere? 
Yes, yeah, so along with Netanyahu, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is also going to be there for uh, Jair, Jair Bolsonaro, the uh, the right wing, I guess you call him like a nationalist leader who was elected president of Brazil. And he presents a tremendous opportunity to go up against um, the Islamic radicals in addition to forming a coalition of countries that care about sovereignty um, as opposed to other countries who are, you know, so corrupt at this point that they don't have much control over their internal affairs and also they have a radicalization problem and they have no control over the migrant caravans that are going through their countries and the, the foreign, um, you know, Islamists that come in and set up roots there. But it's very important to engage, especially the newly elected president of Brazil, who the media calls a far right uh, radical, <laughs> even like Reuters and the AP don't know how else to identify a conservative other than you know, a dictator who's ready to, you know, impose his will on the country. But this is this is a guy um, for his um, for his supposed flaws. He is willing to partner with the United States and other countries that care about sovereignty to you know stop this flow. And especially uh, when it comes to the transnational criminal organization Hezbollah, which is backed by Iran, some countries such as his um, neighbor Argentina had for many years embraced Iran and Hezbollah, and some countries continue, such as Venezuela and um, and others in the region, that have an open-door policy with these countries because the drug trade and alliances with terrorist states provides significant funding and backing for whatever they want to do. So we need to create partners in the Western Hemisphere to help you know, protect us, and it will also help us with our issue at the southern border. If these people are willing to stop, um, especially these Islamists, when they enter South America and begin their journey up north, if they can stop them there, you know, it's much easier there than having to deal with the fight in Congress, uh, as we've discussed at length. The you know Congress is failing to act on border security, so. In order to kind of go above Congress, we can develop relationships with our allies to stop the issue in foreign countries instead of waiting till it gets to our southern port. No, exactly. And, and my concern is, you know, with Bolsonaro now wavering on moving the embassy to Israel, and I know that we're going to watch what comes out of this meeting, it's not just about the embassy in moving the embassy to Jerusalem, it's that you see that on the one hand, we're getting some better governments in some of these countries. More and more of them were getting lucky, but they waver because they're they're small fish. And you have to realize if you have yep. the Arab countries, you have Iran, you have Russia, you have China. If we, this is why I don't understand about the neoconservatives and all these, the foreign policy establishment. They're so concerned about projecting power in the Middle East, which I'm all for doing it in the most efficient way that directs directly addresses our needs and, and interests, not the way they do it, but it's like there's no strategy for Latin America where, you know, the triple crown, you know, Iran, China, and Russia, that's where the subversion's going on. That's where the problem is. You have the Bolivar Alliance. Obviously, a lot of these um, Caribbean countries are a problem, you know, together with Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, Uruguay, um, you know, even uh, 
gosh, those guys like Suriname, Guyana, you know, these countries are problematic now. They've they have they've terrorism there. They have um, you know problems with with foreign influence, and it's like a shutdown. <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing there. Um, Trump, I think, is trying, and he has people in the administration working on this. But I, I don't understand I, I why it's not cool. I think a lot cool. of the issue is that the media gets a. There was a you know the, the Taliban released a couple of videos yesterday of jihadis running around in this training camp, jumping through fire hoops <laughs> and cargo shorts, and then you know, some of our friends were like, "Oh my God, that's why we need to stay in Afghanistan. Look at these <laughs> jihadis. Look what they're trying to do." And it's not as Iran, Russia, and China's efforts, although you can see them everywhere in South America, are more clandestine. They don't release, you know, cool um, videos with CGI about you know, training jihadis and such. So I think it's just not as an excite as an you know eye-catching issue. And some people just totally forget about the the importance of our national security in the in the Western Hemisphere. And as we've discussed, kind of you know reimposing the Monroe Doctrine. To protect our sovereignty. Well, that's where we have it, folks. We're out of time. Um, you know, I, I really wanted to take it back to you know we we started in the Middle East, we went to Latin America, and really back to our homeland. Where ultimately, why do we have national security policy? Bill, because we don't want external threats harming the interior of our country. Well, we have that. Two, two more people were killed by illegal aliens. That is a national security threat. Obviously, that legal immigrant, naturalized um, immigrant cop um, from a small town in California, probably because of sanctuary city policies, you know, very, very sad. Uh, maybe we'll get to that more next, next week. Ronald Singh, um, he was killed. We had another guy that was killed uh, at a gas station by an illegal with a tremendous rap sheet that that uh, was allowed to get out because the sheriff could not, under state law, which is unconstitutional, honor an ICE detainer. We have a thousand illegals being released by ICE because they don't have room anymore because of the invasion in, into our interior at El Paso. A lot more going on. Because we have the shutdown of the mind, the shutdown of strategic thinking, a shutdown of values and intellect among our political class in both parties, among the media, and even a lot of the conservative media, frankly. We are thankful for that we have a team here that includes Jordan. Hey, Jordan, it's been a great year. Happy New Year. And really looking forward to rocking the house next year. Yep, Happy New Year. And I think that's the most important lesson is to continue to challenge the status quo, especially when things don't make sense, when our soldiers are dying overseas in Afghanistan, and you don't understand what's going on. And then there's illegal immigrants going and killing, you know, our best and bravest police officers and uh, you know, civil servants, and it's totally unacceptable. And this, the status quo is also completely unacceptable, and it has to change. Yep, virtue signaling is not strategic thinking. So there you have it, folks. Have a great weekend. Thanks again to Jordan. We will see you next week. God bless. This has been another episode of the Conservative Conscience. 